The reading for today is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in the dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Nick. Morning, Redemption. So, yes, we were serious when we said we were going to do Exodus. Now we're in the midst of that reality. So welcome to Exodus. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Frank. I'm glad to be with you this morning starting this 15-week series. Uh, a couple things before we get started, though. I want to mention... Um, uh, we started a Wednesday night uh, class this past Wednesday for four weeks. Uh, Ryan Brandt is teaching it right here in the sanctuary at 6.30. Uh, and and it, it's on the four ecumenical councils. This is church history stuff. And I know that when you hear that there's a series on the four ecumenical councils, uh, that that does not inspire most people to want to come um, I will tell you that uh, we had a great showing uh, the first night. I came. Uh, Ryan is a PhD in New Testament theology. He teaches at Grand Canyon University. And uh, I had had a very long day Wednesday. I'm just giving a testimony about this, this series. I had a very long day Wednesday. I was tired. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to make it through the session. I was actually invigorated and energized by the end of this session. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Learned all kinds of interesting things about the Trinity and about the Holy Spirit. I would highly recommend that you get to this class. If you've been thinking about it and missed it, uh, please come. And if you want to get caught up, uh, the first session is on our podcast on our website. So I just wanted to give a little plug for uh, Ryan's class. It's really uh, been, been good so far. Uh, for three more Wednesdays, we're going to be doing that. Let me pray and we'll get into uh, Exodus. Uh, Lord God, it's our prayer uh, this morning and for these next 15 weeks that as we examine this book, we would be reminded that this is not just a pretty good story, uh, that this is your history of your people, of your justice, and of making sure that people know who you are. So God, help us through this, this story to not just marvel at the wonderful rhetoric, but rather know who you are. Call us to know who you are. Encourage us and empower us to know who you are. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tim Keller says this, if there is one Old Testament passage that the New Testament invites us to read in a Christ-centered way as a paradigm of Christ's salvation for us, it's the Exodus. There are so many connections that you're going to see throughout this book. Exodus narrates the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery and oppression in Egypt. Many people call Exodus the gospel of the Old Testament. 
Exodus is integral to Israel's identity and self-understanding as a nation, as a people group, and to individual Jewish people as well. It covers that entire gamut. And I want you to focus, my prayer has already been centered on this, but I want you to focus on this. The overarching purpose of the book of Exodus is God making himself known, not just to the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians. But he does it in very different ways. And the reason he does it in very different ways is because both the Egyptians and the Israelites are in completely different contexts, and they need to see God work in completely different ways. And the primary way he does that differently for these two people groups is through his justice. Now, we all know that God is a God of justice, and we understand that, and that's a good thing. What we need to understand is that there's two kinds of justice that God practices. There's something called retributive justice, and then there's something called redemptive justice. And there's a difference. Retributive justice is the type of justice that God practices when a person or a people group willingly and knowingly rebel against God, ignore God, mock God, sin against God, and sin against others. That's the Egyptians. Therefore, God is going to practice his retributive justice on the Egyptians, and not without warning, and not without compassion, and not without patience, but he's going, to, he's going to practice retributive justice on the Egyptians. And they are going to know that he is God through this retributive justice. But for the Israelites, those who have a heart towards God, those who have at least a vague understanding that they are called to something bigger, called to something higher, called to something better, he practices redemptive justice. And he generally does that with oppressed and marginalized people like the Israelites. Redemptive justice is justice that redeems, that reconciles, that restores. And so you're going to see that with the Israelites, even though at times the Israelites don't receive it all that well, as we will see. So there's some intro stuff that we need to go through. This is, I know that's an academic term, stuff. I just want you to know that. Stuff that we need to know to understand Exodus a little bit better. And I'm, believe me, I am just flying over. We could go much deeper. But Exodus, the second book in the Bible, is dependent upon the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, for important background, context, and theological content. Exodus picks up the story where Genesis left off. And here are the major themes of Exodus. It's a long book with 40 chapters, and there are many different literary genres, although there is one dominant literary genre, which I'll describe in a minute. But here are the themes that you'll see coming through constantly in Exodus. Number one, first and foremost, Exodus is about knowing God and is thus heavy in theology. Second of all, it's about God fulfilling his covenant promises to his people by initiating process and progress through his words and actions. And his people are called in covenant to respond to and obey God. Of course, they don't always do that, and the fact that they don't always do that makes for some of the excellent drama that we find in Exodus, and we also find some of us in those situations. Exodus is about God's presence with his people and his providence for his people. Exodus is about formalizing the covenant that God initiated with his people through the patriarch Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 15. And it's about God delivering on his promises to Abraham of the creation of a nation, the gift of his land, and God's desire to bless and to be ever-present with his people. 
Exodus is also a book about the design and construction of the tabernacle, which we'll get to in the last three weeks of the series. And lastly, Exodus is a book that God calls God's people to holiness as God demonstrates his compassion and his justice. And just for your information, the word Exodus means a going out or departure. A going out or departure. Approximately 350 years elapse between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, but we still need an understanding of Genesis to be able to push forward into uh, the book of Exodus. God's people who were once revered in Egypt when they first got there under the leadership of Joseph had become slaves in the last couple hundred years. And so they cry out to God and God responds by leading the people out of Egypt eventually with Moses as his appointed leader. God's covenant people, this is, this is the, the picture, God's covenant people pass through from slavery, oppression, and death to life, freedom, and purpose. That is good news, and that is the gospel. If you don't see Jesus in that, you're not looking. Okay? As such, the New Testament sees Exodus as the pattern of the life, death, ministry, sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, about literary genres. I won't, I won't go into too much detail, but the primary literary genre that we will encounter, the, the, the whole of Exodus can be described as what's known as epic narrative. Not just narrative, it's epic narrative. So let me describe epic narrative in the context of Exodus for you. Epic narrative features a cruel villain, Pharaoh, an unlikely hero, Moses, overwhelming disasters, the plagues, a spectacular deliverance, crossing the Red Sea, a long journey through wilderness, a mountaintop experience, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and it contains miracles, setbacks, and confrontations between good and evil. We will get into all of that. But also, there's legal code literature, there's architectural and building narrative, there's, there are ritual instructions, and there is some poetry as well. And the event of the Exodus likely took place around 1446 BC. Moses was born earlier than that, but the actual Exodus probably took place somewhere around 1446 BC, making it a book that is primarily set in the 15th century BC. Lastly, by way of introduction, let me say this. The truth is, I was, as my friend Chuck likes to say, I was born on third base in life. Frank, me. I was. I'm talking about me now. Uh, at, to use a baseball metaphor, which I never use, but it's the best metaphor I could come up with, okay? Because it's Chuck's metaphor. Anyway, I was born on third base. I, I never actually hit a triple, which is the most difficult base hit in baseball to achieve. I was just put there on third base. It was a fluke, predestination, whatever. And not only was I born on third base, but the pitcher was about to throw a wild pitch, so I was just going to trot home. I didn't even have to wait for anything spectacular to happen. Are you kind of getting what I'm saying here? Okay. I was dealt a really good hand in life. And then I hit two other jackpots. In a, in a moment of clear confusion on her part, Jackie said yes to marrying me. <laughs> and then Redemption Church called me eight years ago to this, this congregation. Now, here's what I'm not saying. It's not like I never had to work hard. I still had to persevere, be disciplined, and take my knocks. I had to struggle through a lot of school, doing most of it while I had a family and with virtually no income. And I still had to eat dirt in lousy jobs in order to eventually be qualified for a good job. Here's just one example. 
the year after, the summer after I had graduated with my bachelor's degree from Grand Canyon University, and I was waiting, go Lopes, I don't know how to do this thing, so I do this. Um, so, so the summer before I was going to start seminary at Fuller Seminary, um, I landed a job at Grand Canyon University uh, in the concession stands of their baseball field for $5 an hour, okay? So uh, one night I'm working that job, and I had fun there, free popcorn, free hot dogs, what's not to like about this job? Anyway, I, I, I'm working there one night, and somebody walks up, and they order their stuff, and I give it to them, and, and then they go, didn't you just graduate from Grand Canyon University? And I said, yes. And they kind of went like this. And looked at the concession stand. Said, and this was the best job you got graduating from Grand Canyon University? <laughs> I've worked the hard jobs, is what I'm trying to say. I did what it took in, in order to get through to where I could be a contributor. But I also know that I've had it pretty good. I'm a person whose probably greatest depression suffered was when people in my master's program at Arizona State University mocked the church, mocked Christianity, and mocked my faith. Yet, I am about to take us through a book of the Bible for the next 15 weeks that is about seriously oppressed people, written by seriously oppressed people, and written for seriously oppressed people, and Exodus is written to warn those people who think that they've got it made, but in fact are worshiping and dependent upon not the one true God, but an array of their own arrogantly constructed false gods that they need to have a reckoning with the one true God. Are we ready? Here's, here's a question Paul asks in Romans chapter 1 by implication. Are you and I ready to be handed over to our gods? Or do we truly know the one true God? It's not a frivolous question. We need to be asking ourselves this. You and I today must engage and wrestle with the fact that we, the church, many of us, are not just the Israelites in this story. So many Christians look at this story over and over and over and see themselves as the Israelites in this story. We need to understand that we are also, more than we realize, the Egyptians in this story. Many of us are far too dependent on and comfortable with our false gods, our idols. So we must also be willing to see the Egypt in us. Many of us are what is known as Pharaonic Christians. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Pharaoh, Pharaonic Christians. We really don't know Joseph, and therefore we don't know the God of Joseph. All of us are going to have to work really hard over the next 15 weeks to think very differently about life, Jesus, and our faith. The book of Exodus is not just an interesting read that might make a pretty good movie. This is a book about slavery, persecution, lost hope, found hope, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the grace of God, the love of God, and God's long game. Here you go. This book is the furthest thing from consumer Christianity that you're ever going to find. So be ready. Be ready. Back in the uh, mid to late 1990s, I remember it was a time in church culture uh, and in our uh, culture, both, very similar to right now. People kept talking um, in the mid to late 1990s about how the church needed to have a paradigm change. 
desperately, the church needs a paradigm change. The church needs to quit doing things the way they're doing and start looking more like our culture. That's the paradigm change that so many of us were calling us to. And I will tell you that that same paradigm change is being called for today. And I will tell you, it's the wrong paradigm change. The correct paradigm change is that God's people would start to move toward God and his word and start to know God better and deeper. That is the paradigm church, the paradigm change that our church is being called to. And Exodus calls us to that. So let's just go through chapter one. It's an overview. We're going to go really fast, but it'll set the stage for the rest of the story. So the first eight verses, let me read. Nick read eight through 14. I'm going to read one through eight to get us started. Um, Sean Myers has described chapter one, and I think he's right, as a bit of a chess match. It seems like the, the people do something, and then Pharaoh does something, and then the people do something, and then Pharaoh does something, and God is doing something in all of it. But there's kind of this back and forth chess match. And, and verses one through eight connect us back to Genesis, which I'll talk about uh, in more detail in just a minute. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Jacob's name is also Israel. So that's the namesake of the nation. Each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. That's the key. We need to know why Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land, Egypt, was filled with them. Now there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. So where are we coming from as this story begins? Looking back at Genesis, uh, the last part of Genesis is the longest extended historical narrative about any one person in, in the, in the um, uh, in the Old Testament, it's about Joseph. There's 14 chapters there. One of the chapters really isn't much about Joseph, but the rest of them is the story of Joseph. It's Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph is the favored son of 12 sons, the fa clearly favored son of the namesake of the nation of Israel. His name is Israel, but he was named Jacob even before he changed his name to Israel. Uh, Israel's story, Jacob's story, is found in Genesis 25 through 36. I would suggest you read these, 20, these 26 chapters, chapter 25 through 50. They are wonderful, and, and it'll just, you'll learn a lot, and they're better than any novel that you can ever read, and I love reading novels. So uh, Joseph was about 18 years old, we believe, when his brothers got sideways with him because Joseph was the favored son of Israel, and they decided to sell him into slavery. So that's what you do with a sibling that you're unhappy with, is you sell them into slavery. They actually did this, and they got some money for him. Uh, and Joseph was carted off from their land, and he ended up in Egypt. And this is in the early 1800s B.C., while he's there as a slave, Joseph, we're constantly told the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph began to overcome all kinds of incredible obstacles and soon had a wonderful career going working for a guy named Potiphar. But then Joseph somehow got sideways with the boss's wife, with Potiphar's wife. We don't know her name, we just refer to her as Ms. Potiphar. And this was not his fault. She falsely accuses Joseph of, of a crime and he ends up in prison. Now, he could have been executed, but he just ends up in prison. 
But by God's providence, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph is in prison, but he emerges eventually from prison several years later and actually becomes Pharaoh's number two guy. The king of Egypt, he becomes his number two guy. He's his chief of staff. He's in charge of everything. Pharaoh gives him a, a, a power of attorney to do whatever he wants. And then by God's providence, uh, Joseph, as the, the chief of staff, is the number two guy who's in charge of the food supply now of the whole world because the rest of the world is having a famine. By God's providence, 22 years after his brothers had sold him into slavery and presumed that he was dead, his brothers have to travel to Egypt desperately because of this famine and Egypt, under Joseph's leadership, was the only place that had food, so they had to come there. And so they asked to see what we might call the grain czar, the person who was in charge of the food, and that happened to be Joseph. They didn't ask him for him by name. They didn't know what his name was. And so they go in to see Joseph, the grain czar, to ask him for food, and the brothers do not recognize Joseph because they presumed that he was dead. You get sold into slavery in those days, you're dead within a few years. They presumed that he was dead, and Joseph had been in Egypt for 22 years now. He had assimilated into Egypt, uh, Egyptian culture, so now he looks like an Egyptian. He speaks like an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. Dare I say, he walks like an Egyptian. I guess he sits like an Egyptian too because he wasn't walking around when they came in. Finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they, of course, are horrified because they figure they're dead. It's a pretty excellent drama. Long story short, or long story uh, long, um, Joseph forgives his brothers and moves his entire family, including his over-the-top grateful and aging father, Israel, to Egypt so that they can be taken care of. Joseph's family came to Egypt some 400 or so years before the Exodus account gets started, and they, be, they came as loved and revered people given the prime land in Egypt because Joseph had served Egypt so well. But now as verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1 says, Egypt has forgotten all about Joseph. And that's what countries and institutions and organizations do if they aren't reminded. If we aren't reminded, we forget. It's so simple but so true. This is why the apostles Paul and Peter are so adamant about us remembering who we are as God's people and remembering that, God, that the gospel of Jesus has done things for us that we could never do for ourselves. This is why we have communion, the Lord's Supper, every Sunday to remember and to proclaim. This is why I'm constantly reminding us of redemption's short but important history. So that's the connection to Genesis. Things were great for God's people in Egypt for a long time. Now they're not. And things are about to get much worse. Two other quick comments before moving on. In verse 7, it talks about how the Israelites were fruitful and had increased greatly. Clearly, this is a direct reference to God's command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and to multiply. And it's a reference to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis that his people would be many like the stars. And also, we need to understand just the numbers here. Uh, a little fewer than 100 people came to Egypt originally, hundreds of years earlier. But now, instead of just that 100 people, there are hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and the new Pharaoh doesn't like it. So look at verses 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So now the question is, where are we going? We've dealt with where we were coming from. Now we say, where are we going? This paragraph gives us that. Verses 8 through 14 now introduce us to the tension the conflict and the drama that leads us to the physical exodus, which comes in later chapters, the departure of God's people from their home of hundreds of years into the wilderness, to the Ten Commandments, to the tabernacle, and eventually to their entrance in their new land. And again, Exodus is connected to Genesis. If you look at Genesis, the last few verses of Genesis, it says this, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. All of that comes true in the book of Exodus. It's just 400 years later that it comes true. Now there is... Tremendous oppression for the Israelites that arises under this new king. And this leads us to the, infa- uh, the, the issue of the infanticide of the male children of the Israelites. And next week, when we look at chapter 2, we are introduced to Moses and his providential rescue from this regime of infanticide. And years later, many years later, 80 years later, Moses becomes God's instrument of leadership for the exodus. And we will see God's eventual declaration of his knowledge of the suffering of his people and his plan to move on that. A couple other comments about this paragraph. It says in verse 11 that taskmasters were set over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. Uh, Way back in Genesis 15, again, see the connection to Genesis constant? In Genesis 15, God has called Abraham the first father of his people and has made a covenant with Abraham. And the first 11 verses of Genesis 15 is God making this covenant with Abraham. That Abe will be the earthly father of God's people and God will bless them and provide for them and protect them. So far, so good. But then, in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Behold, Exodus chapter 1. By the way, can we see why the African American community appreciates the book of Exodus so much? And then one more interesting detail here. Making, producing, or manufacturing bricks in the ancient world as described here. We know this from historical record. This was one of the most physically demanding, dirtiest, and suffering jobs you could do anywhere. It was one of the worst worst jobs ever. There is just no way to fully reproduce the misery, this misery that they suffered in today's comfortable, high standard of living that we all have but we should at least attempt to understand how miserable it was for them when they cried out. And then this last part, 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, 
When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you must cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. In other words, if the midwives aren't going to be able to do it, then the rest of the people need to do this. Find the Hebrew male children and throw them into the Nile and drown them and kill them. Infanticide. Okay? Uh, I will tell you, I see Genesis 1, uh, the main text of Genesis 1, as, as a tale of two fears. It's a story of two different kinds of fears. The first fear we see is in verses 8 through 10. This is the king's fear. This is Pharaoh's fear. Pharaoh is afraid of these people. He's afraid of the Israelites, people who have served well for centuries. He's afraid of them. And this fear, being afraid of them, this fear is a fear that leads to oppression, it leads to conflict, it leads to paranoia, and it leads to injustice. This kind of fear is often an irrational fear. It's a fear of what might happen. I have this fear. I am an expert at being afraid of what might happen. And 90% of the time, the fear is justified because 90% of the time, what might happen doesn't happen. So my fear has prevented that from happening, obviously. You see how stupid this is? Or it's simply a fear of that which will never happen. Yet this fear hurts people. This is not a rational fear, but an emotional fear. It's what Jonathan Haidt describes as emotional reasoning. And it is destructive. In this case here, the Jews who had been there for 350 years we're now seen as threatening outsiders by Pharaoh. That's the one fear. Here's the other fear. It's the fear that the midwives had. They feared God. They, they have a fear that leads to righteousness, wisdom, and courage. This is a fear of reverence, of awe, of respect, and of honor for God. It's a way different fear than the fear we see in Pharaoh in verses 8 through 10. This is a constructive fear. This is, this is the, the fear that you and I are relentlessly called in Scripture to have. Remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, knowledge, and insight. We are told that over and over and over and over in Scripture, New Testament and Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all these good things. Shifra and Pua, at the risk of execution, feared God more than they feared the king. And it led to the preservation of God's people. When we talk about heroes of the faith, why aren't the names of these two women proclaimed more often? Or at all? You don't have to show hands, but how many of you, this is the first time you've ever even heard the name Shifra and Pua? And just think, the king is ever, never actually named in this history. We never get his name. But these two women are named because they should be remembered. This fear that these two women had, the fear of the Lord, 
actually leads to fearlessness. The fear of the Lord actually leads to fearlessness, courage. Jesus said more than 500 times in the Gospels, do not be afraid. Why? Because we should fear him. We should live in in respect and reverence for him. I ask myself this question, how do I become fearless like these women? Fear God. Now, one little question here that I think is helpful to deal with before we finish. It's the question of, doesn't the Bible say something about how you're supposed to obey the governing authorities and these women disobeyed the governing authorities? What do you do with that? When am I allowed to disobey the governing authorities? Is it when the speed limit's 35 and I really need to go 50 to make that next light? I can justify that. Okay? Maybe not you, but I can. Okay? Actually, this idea of disobeying, when you're allowed to disobey, is way narrower than most people realize. And there's a, there's a pretty good test that'll help you get on the road as to whether or not disobedience is the right thing. And here it is. When you are commanded to do that which God prohibits, or when you are prohibited to do that which God commands. Well, that sounds like a lot, no? In the Bible, there's only three times. In the entire scripture, there's only three times. One of them is here. Another one is in Daniel chapter 3, when the three boys disobey Nebuchadnezzar. They do not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And then in Acts chapter 5, when the guys get beat and they are told, don't proclaim Jesus anymore. And they said, are we going to obey God or are we going to obey man? We can't but proclaim Jesus. Tough darts. It's the only time. So it's not as common as we think, but sometimes necessary. Here's what I want us to consider as we close this parallel. King Herod, the beginning of the New Testament, had decreed that all male babies born when Jesus was born to be killed. (laughs) You see that? Yet Jesus lived. Jesus survived. The providence of God. The providence of God. We're going to see next week the providence of God in Moses' life as well. Moses' story is quite similar. And you know, there are no coincidences. And I know that sometimes that's really hard to hear, especially when we hear it in the middle of some very hard times. Is God causing or allowing this misery that I'm currently going through? And the answer is yes. He's sovereign. If he's God, he is sovereign. And if he's sovereign, he's either allowing it or he's causing it, but he's going to use it for his good purposes in his long game. I know that's not very comforting while we're in the middle of it, but he's going to use it for his purposes in his long game. Misery and oppression consumed much of Moses' life. We'll see later in Exodus that Moses was actually exiled for 40 years before God used him. And Moses started being used by God when he was 80 years old. Some of you right now are thinking, well, i got more time to have some fun then. You're not Moses, Okay. But then Moses spent the last 40 years of his life being the Old Testament chosen one of God to lead God's people out of their oppression. And in the process, Moses got to deal with the ungrateful grumbling and sin of the very people that God saved. Jesus, similarly, lived and died in order to save us. And he did so even as his crew of disciples then and us today whine, moan, and complain about how God chooses to do things. We need to slow down and truly ponder this. 
Jesus left his throne, came to us, lived perfectly, suffered, and then died unjustly for us. Jesus is the greatest love story ever in the history of the world. And we're called to be grateful and filled with joy for that. And I'm sure that when he comes again, we will. Because then, as Paul says, we will finally be able to see clearly. Paul says we see through a dark glass right now. We can't see clearly right now. So, we grumble. We grumble. We complain. But Jesus loves us so much that he's willing to even put up with all the grumbling. Even in all of Moses' imperfections, and we'll see he's not perfect, he fulfilled a similar call from God for his people that Jesus fulfilled. Both Moses and Jesus are sent to rescue God's people from the misery of sin and from this corrupt, misaligned, and sullied creation. Moses was a harbinger. He was a foreshadow. He was a type of the truer and better Savior, Jesus. By God's grace and power, Moses will lead God's people out of their oppression and prepare them for their better home, which is exactly what Jesus does for us. Exodus is yet one more picture, one more testimony of God's love, grace, and restoration of his people to be perfected at the second coming of Christ. And for that, we should have great joy and gratitude. Welcome to Exodus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for how you move through all of these testaments, histories, narrations, letters, and literature Your word, God's word. We thank you for how you move through all of that. And in the process, your Holy Spirit moves in us as well. So God, remind us of our call to know you and to serve you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.